Mark 7, 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. For all of us, my guess is that before you came to church today, before you left your house you looked in the mirror and you made sure that you looked good, right? That's my guess is that most of us, before we left the house, we looked in the mirror to make sure that we looked good, that your shirt matched your, your, your pants, that your hair was in place, that you just all around looked presentable. Uh, I mean, from, from my vantage point, from my point of view, not all of you did that, but it looks like most of you did. And why do we spend time doing that? Why do we spend time in front of the mirror, like before we leave the house, before we're going to go meet a group of people? Why do we spend time uh, fixing ourselves, making sure that we, we look all right, combing our hair, ironing our clothes? It's, it's because we, we ultimately, we just want to be presentable, right? We want to be presentable. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's, a, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm grateful that many of you care to be presentable, right? Like, we want to be presentable when, when we're before people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in the same way, there are things that we try to do to make ourselves presentable to God. There are things that we do to try and make ourselves presentable to God. Maybe spiritual things, 
religious things, maybe traditions. But in our text this morning, in Mark chapter 7, we see that God is not as concerned about our appearance or even our performance as much as he is about the, the spiritual health of our, our hearts. And in our text, Jesus confronts a group of his critics who basically got this whole idea all backwards. They were all concerned about looking presentable on the outside, but they, they sort of put on this spiritual front on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were, were far from God. And so we're digging into Mark chapter 7, the first 23 verses, and I'm going to walk you through three points this morning. First, we're going to look at the dilemma of our hearts in this text, the dilemma of our hearts. Secondly, the deception of empty religion. And third and last, the desire that Jesus satisfies. Let's look at that first one. The dilemma of our hearts. Read verse one with me. Verse one says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, when they came to Jesus with some of the scribes, it says, who had come from Jerusalem. Now, I'll stop there for a second. You see here, here we see the Pharisees. And when we see the Pharisees, it's like, ah, Pharisees. So we meet again, right? Like we first ran into these Pharisees in chapter two. And by now, you should know that when you see the Pharisees walk onto the scene, in the Gospel of Mark, or in any Gospel account about the life of Jesus, whenever you see the Pharisees sort of walk onto the scene, you should hear these like three musical notes going on in the background. Dun, 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 right? Because these are the great, they're, they're the great antagonists here. And that's because the Pharisees, they're bad news. They're bad news. There's this group of guys who rejected all the claims of Jesus, that he was the long-awaited Savior King that everyone longed for. And so they also happen to be the religious elite of the day. And Jesus' growing popularity was therefore a, a threat to their, their influence. And for that reason, they wanted Jesus out. They needed Jesus to go, and so they call in their scribes, sort of their theological heavyweights from Jerusalem, and say, hey guys, look into this Jesus guy for us. Help us press into him, and let's try and trap him. And then it continues in verse 2. Read it with me. It says that they, the Pharisees, and their scribes, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And why does that matter? Mark tells us in verse 3, he adds this editorial comment. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not, any, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. That's important. Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so then they ask him, they see this, and they press into Jesus, why do your disciples Disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but instead eat with defiled hands. And all the germaphobes here said, Amen, right? <laughs> so what's going on here? What is, what is this controversy in this, in, this, in this text? You see, the Pharisees, this, this group, they're trying to find any reason they can to take Jesus out. They're trying to find any reason they can to get Jesus killed, to send him to the cross. And here they find this theological issue with him and his disciples. They're like, aha. And then they double down on it. And what's the issue they find? 
something about washing hands before supper. <laughs> it's like you read that and you're like, really? Like that's the one thing you're going you're gonna to come to Jesus on? Now I know that that sounds silly to us, right? It sounds like a minor issue. It sounds silly to us, but you need to understand that there's something deep going on beneath the surface culturally. There's something deeper going on here. Verse 3 tells us that the issue is over proper washing. Proper washing. And so in case you're wondering, this is not the same rule that your mom gave you, like wash your hands before dinner. This was an issue of ceremonial cleansing. It was about how we, as God's people, can externally prepare ourselves to approach God in worship and to be accepted by him. That's ultimately what they were talking about. Now, I'm going to sort of unpack something about the Old Testament that's like, it's really important that you get this, right? Because some, sometimes like we read the Old Testament and we're like, how do we make sense of this, right? The Old Testament is really confusing. There's all these lists, there's these laws and these rituals. And so we have this tendency to skip past all that or to, or to skirt through it. Don't do that. You see, in the Old Testament, what, 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 what we're going to see is how you've got this, this, this list of laws, right? Many of them are clean laws, cleansing ritual laws. You see them in Exodus. You see them in Leviticus. And these, I know this sounds like this is going boring, but just, just track with me because this is important. The clean laws in the Old Testament, they said that Jewish priests were not allowed to step into the temple of God if they had been in any type of contact with anything unclean. So if they were around any sort of dirt or disease or decay. And so, and so back in the, in the Old Testament, if you were around a leper, you needed to clean yourself. Or you were around a dead person, someone who was decaying. Or even if you were around shellfish, which was considered an unclean food, because before you had refrigeration, like back then, shellfish, more than anything, was prone to getting nasty really fast, right? It was prone to spoiling really quick. And so they had these laws, these rules that would say any sort of disease, dirt, or decay, you just like, kind of avoid those things. Now, normally, normally when we read these long lists of like strict laws in the Old Testament that drone on and on, we get bored. We get confused. Like, why is God so concerned about these tiny, measly details? Why is he so concerned about these minute details? But here's my encouragement to you. When you're feeling that way, when you're reading the Old Testament, when you see something boring, ask questions. Press in. And when you press into these laws, you'll see that beneath the surface of all those clean laws is this deep, eternal truth that we all need to wrestle with. A truth that is actually key to helping us understand how beautiful the saving work of Jesus really is. You see, I think some of us have this tendency when we look at the Bible to think that, you know, God in the Old Testament is like super uptight, grumpy, like his curmudgeonly character. But then in the New Testament, he has a kid and sort of mellows out a bit, right? But if you just do a plain reading of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, a plain reading just reveals that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And once you begin to see how it all sort of like fits together, you see that every, that there's nothing in all of these, these early books with the laws and the rituals that's arbitrary. Nothing is accidental. Every bit of it comes together and teaches us something about God, something about ourselves, and eventually reveals something about Jesus Christ. 
And so when you press into those laws, you see that the Old Testament priests washing their hands before they entered the temple, that was really just a symbol, a symbol that said, we are sinful people that need to be made clean before approaching the presence of a pure and holy God. That was the point. It was an outward manifestation of sort of this inward reality going on. That our greatest problem is not out there, but in here. And so when we say that God is holy and pure, what we mean by that is that he is perfect in every way. He is the source for all that is true, all that is good, all that is beautiful. And when we say that we are sinful, what we mean by that is that when a person strays from the truth, goodness, and beauty of God, that rebellion is what we call sin. And it stains us. It defiles us. And so to be impure just means to to break away from the goodness of the God who made us in his image. And that is the dilemma of our hearts. Every single one of us. That is the dilemma of our hearts. So we are creatures. We are made creatures, made to bear the image of a good, true beautiful, and a holy God. We are made to to, to reflect him. But because of sin, we're stained. We're we're broken, all of us. There's an English newspaper uh, uh, about a century ago that, um, maybe 70, 80 years ago, that that once asked a group of uh, famous authors at the time to write in and answer the question for them, what is wrong with the world today. What is wrong with the world today? And one author, uh, a Christian, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote in uh, with one sentence, two words. He says, dear sirs, I am. I am. That's a snarky but brilliant comment. And I love in two words just the worldview lesson he's teaching behind it. You see, it takes humility to say, look, the problem is not out there but in here. And my only hope can come from from up there. You see, Jesus and the Pharisees, they agreed that we are all born spiritually defiled. Like some of us, we don't don't like that, that, that teaching. We, we want to think the best of humanity. We want to think the best of ourselves and of our neighbors. And that's good. Like there's actually something, there's a virtue behind that. Because every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, every single one of us is made in the image of God with value and being and, and, and dignity. Every single one of us, regardless of your creed. There's like the main character of uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I forget his name. And even if I remembered it, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it. But he, uh, there's, this, there's this one point where he convinces himself that there's no such thing as right or wrong. There's no morality in, in the world. And so he, he convinces himself that, therefore, it's okay to just basically take out this old curmudgeonly woman that, like, everyone in the area just, like, kind of hates. And he's like, you know what, they're really, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as morality, there's no such thing as right or wrong, there's no such thing as evil or sin, and so I'm just going to go for it. And then once he does, he can't get over the nine sense that I've done something wrong. I'm defiled. 
You see, Jesus and the Pharisees, they agree, they both agree that we are born spiritually defiled and in need of hope. What they, what they disagreed on was, was, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? And so when the Pharisees press into Jesus and they ask, why do your disciples not wash their hands properly like we do? Jesus then responds by exposing where their empty religion goes wrong. And so this is our second point, the deception of empty religion. The deception of empty religion. Notice the response, uh, how Jesus responds. Pretty bold. He kind of lays into them. Read it in verse six. It says, he, Jesus, said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, or teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. You can almost hear the people in the room going, oh, right? He called them hypocrites. Like he's talking to the religious establishment of the day. Like, can you really talk to them like that? Can this rabbi really talk to these uber rabbis like that? And why is he calling them hypocrites? Now, the term hypocrite is not a fun word to be called, right? It's not a fun title to hold. And that word hypocrite is a Greek, is, it's, it's originally a Greek word taken from the theater from when an actor would wear a mask that matched the role that they were playing. I remember some years ago, uh, 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 this Kiefer Sutherland interview. Uh, he was being interviewed. And um, if you don't know who Kiefer Sutherland is, he's an actor. He played Jack Bauer in 24. Uh, if you don't know what 24 is, uh, you need to repent of that nonsense uh, and go home after church and stream that on Amazon Prime. Uh, I just checked this morning. It's free on Amazon Prime. So... Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, he plays, he plays Jack, Jack Bauer, who's uh, this like agent who he's often this rogue agent, but he always does the right thing. Uh, and and he, he, he's a main character throughout the whole series. He serves on the counter-terrorist unit. He's just this intense guy. And, the, and every single episode just follows him and his team around as he's just saving the world 24 hours a day at a time again and again. And in this interview with Kiefer Sutherland, the actor, he, he, he talked about how, how uh, this, this show just sort of blew up, like spread in popularity. And he has people running into him in public going, Jack, like calling him Jack Bauer, like his character. His name's Kiefer, but they see him and they're like, Jack, right? And he said, uh, he, you know, he just always had to correct people saying like, no, like my name's not Jack, I'm an actor, it's Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, but then eventually he just started saying, hey, <laughs> he started responding to uh, people calling him Jack. Now, imagine, though, instead of being mistaken for Jack, that he just claimed it, right? He's like, you know, I know these people like Jack Bauer more than they like Kiefer Sutherland. And so I'm just, I'm just from here on out, I am Jack Bauer. I am a member of the of CTU, the Coward Terrorist Unit. You'd be like, no, that guy needs to get his head checked, right? Something is askew here. That would be being a hypocrite in the truest sense of the word, using a mask to cover up who you really are. Not owning who you really are and wanting to project something and someone else. And so I want you to notice a few areas of hypocrisy now that Jesus exposes in these Pharisees. 
We're going to call these areas, I'm just going to call them empty religion because really there's, there's just an outward uh, 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 a picture of religion, but there's no true gospel substance on the inside. And I want you as we're going through these to consider how, how maybe you might do these too. The first one, empty religion places tradition over truth. Empty religion places tradition over truth. Look at verse eight with me. Jesus tells them, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, which for the record is Jesus interjecting sarcasm there. He's saying you have a fine way of really rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, the tradition of men mentioned in verse 8 uh, it was this oral law. It's this oral law passed down from, from generation to generation to generation. It was eventually written down and codified in this collection of 1,500 traditions called the Mishnah, which actually kind of started off with a really good intention. The good intention was, hey, let's figure out how to apply God's word in the small details of every life. This was a good intention, but they took it too far. They sort of built a fence around God's law with these traditions to make sure that you would never violate God's law. And so it'd be like, like saying, hey, because I don't want to break the law, the 40 mile per hour speed limit on, on, on Santa Margarita Parkway, because I'm really afraid of breaking that speed limit, I'm just going to get out and push my car instead. It's like, all right, that's one way to do it. Or in this case, in Mark 7, the Old Testament law actually never required all people to do the ceremonial hand washing. It never required that in all the Old Testament. You can look for it, but it never requires all people to do the ceremonial cleansing. That was only for the Jewish priests when they were putting a sacrifice in the temple. But the Pharisees said to show how devout they were, to show how dedicated they were, how holy they were, they said, hey, we're going to do that too, and we're going to require all of you followers of us to do the same so we can show how devoted we are. And since the Pharisees placed their tradition over truth, when they saw the disciples eating with dirty hands, they get in Jesus' face. That's what prompted that. You see, but to Jesus, that, the Mishnah, that collection of laws, was just rules on top of rules on top of rules. Some were good. Some were not so good, but all of them ultimately were made up by men and not by God. Now, to be clear, to be clear, I'm not slamming tradition. I'm not slamming tradition. Jesus himself followed some cultural traditions. Like the Bible says we should pray and fast, but he prayed and fasted on certain days and in certain ways according to traditions that we don't really see in the scripture. Tradition can, can in some ways be a really good and, and beautiful thing. Traditions help us know what to expect. It can show in some ways our camaraderie with those who came before us. It adds special flair to things like weddings and funerals and holidays. Families have traditions. Churches have traditions. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. We serve good coffee. Those are traditions. We have a liturgy, an order of service that is shaped by the scriptures, but also passed down through the ages. So we sing songs, we confess our sins together, we receive good news preaching together, we eat the communion meal together, we sing more songs. And at King's Cross, like most of our traditions that we do in our, in our liturgy were, are given to us like straight from the Bible, like preaching, gathering on Sundays, uh, communion. Those are all means of God's grace given to us in the scriptures 
verses that he, he uses to, to strengthen our faith. He says, do these things. And so Jesus is, in some ways, he's pro-tradition. But he also rails against toxic tradition again and again and again. And here, he warns us not to enforce man-made traditions as though they were God-made commandments. I love the way that Yaroslav Pelikan, uh, this Lutheran pastor, and he was a his history professor at Yale, I, wonder the, I love the way that he, he kind of unpacks this tension. He says, tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. You see, traditions are good, but they don't save. They don't save. They don't bring good news in and of themselves. They should point us to the one who does save. And see, there's a danger for a new church like this one. There's a danger for a new church like us where we can assume that what we're doing is where it's at, right? So where our style of music, with the way we rework hymns, we can say like, yeah, that's where it's at. Or our style of preaching, we say, that's where it's at. Some of you are like, ah, maybe the music, right? <laughs> but church plants, you see church plants, new churches like ours, we tend to have our nuanced distinctives that attract new people, that attract non-Christians. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap as the, that the Pharisees fell into, where we place maybe too much stock in our traditions and we end up finding ourselves where we're honoring Jesus with our lips, our traditions, and not with our hearts, where our hearts are divorced from our head and our hands. What about you? What traditions or maybe opinions about Christianity, about church life that you have, what nuanced opinions do you have that maybe you emphasize over the truth that's revealed in Scripture? In what ways... Are you placing emphasis on what you do for God rather than on what he's done for you, what he's revealed? The second danger of empty religion is that empty religion values practice over people. Empty religion values practice over people. We see this in uh, verse 10. Jesus says, Moses said that on, he, he told us to honor your father and your mother. And elsewhere he says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. He's saying, you guys do stuff like this all the time. Now, What's going on here is that the tradition of the Pharisees, what they did is they created this sort of sneaky little loophole where you can take any portion of your property and you could declare it Corbin, which literally means I offer this to God. And so what that meant is that if someone in your family, like a relative, a sibling, maybe even one of your parents who needed financial help because of like old age or disease or something like that, if they came up to you and said, hey, you're the kinsman, can you bail us out of this problem? Can you help us? The loophole that the Pharisees gave in their traditions would allow you to say, gosh, I, I'd really like to, but you know, that, that, that land over there, <laughs> that belongs to God. So, you know, sorry about that, right? And Jesus says their tradition 
that's handed down to them has made void to them, has made, has, was constructed in a way where it, it, it encourages them to just outright deny, consider void, some of the good things that God has called them to. And here, empty religion ironically gets in the way of actually obeying God's call to love others. You see, when your religious practice is placed over loving a person, then it's lost its, pra- its purpose. You have no need for it. Third, empty religion emphasizes the external over the internal. Read verse 14 with me. It says, he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. So he's saying, look, this is really important. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples come up to him and they ask him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20 says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. This is important. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, this statement that Jesus is making here, this long statement, is a provocative statement. Because here he's really getting to the heart of the matter, to the heart of empty religion. You see, true Christianity, true religion is a, is a religion of the heart. Empty religion ignores the heart and focuses on what we say and do. But God will not be satisfied with just our words. He will not be satisfied with just our behavior. He will not be satisfied with just our knowledge. He won't be satisfied by public displays of devotion. What he wants is your heart. Why is the heart so important? All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see this reference to the heart again and again and again. Keep your heart, guard your heart, out of the heart, protect your heart. What is so important about the heart? You see, the, 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 the idea of the heart is one of the most important doctrines that you can learn here. Like if you want to understand why the heart is so important, then you need to understand the theology of the heart that's laid out in the scriptures. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking only about where your emotion and your passions live. But when the scriptures talk about the heart, it talks about the very center of who you are. You see, in the Bible, the heart is the very center of your personhood. All of your thoughts, all of your desires, all of your values, your motivations, your attitudes, your behaviors, all of those flow out from the heart. It's the steering wheel of your life. And so what rules your heart, the Bible says, will rule your life. And that is why Jesus is after the heart, because if he doesn't have your heart, then he doesn't have you. He doesn't have you. It's not enough to jump through religious hoops if your heart is ruled by your, your idols. And look, this is Christian self-awareness like 101. If you want to grow in the gospel, then you have to keep your heart. You have to care for the internal uh, over the external. 
you have to ask the Lord to do work on your heart. And look, it's easy to miss this one. It's easy to miss this one, even as important as it is. You know why? Because none of us ever get affirmed, ever get applauded, ever get patted on the back for the health of our hearts. We get applauded for the Christian things that we say and the Christian things that we do. But no one can immediately observe what's going on in your heart. But that's what Jesus is after. This week, um, I saw a headline. Oscar sent it to me uh, that, that really just crushed me to the core. Uh, one, one, of my, one of my recent like preaching heroes who I was introduced to like five years ago, uh, I started listening to his sermons, reading his book on preaching. Uh, he was removed from his position as pastor of his church and as professor at his seminary after admitting to at least two accounts that we know of of sexual misconduct. Uh, and this one hurt me. Like, they all hurt, but this one really stung. It was just like two, what was it, two, three months ago, we were in Reno uh, at a church planning conference with our network, and he provided uh, the, 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 one of the plenary messages on humility and holiness. And it wrecked me. It challenged my leadership, like here at the church. And, and, and it, it just, it, it, like his sermon wrecked me. But then I got the news that, that I read this week, and I was crushed. You see, this, this man that I looked up to was a beast in the pulpit, but a complete fool in private. I'm genuinely praying that now because he's, he's come clean and that his church is caring for him, I'm genuinely praying that he's, he's closer to Jesus now than he's been in years. But this is why Jesus warned the Pharisees. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. We need to do work on our hearts. We need to press in. We need to ask ourselves, shoot straight with ourselves. In the hours of your everyday life, is the Jesus that you honor with your lips when you come here to church and when you're singing his praises? Is the Jesus that you honor with your lips that you talk about in home group? Is the Jesus that you honor with your lips the Jesus that has your heart, that rules your heart? I want to make something clear here. I'm not saying don't pursue holiness, don't pursue godly behavior unless you're really feeling it, all right, like on the inside. You see, younger generations, uh, like I, I, I think I'm, I'm like on the front end of the millennial generation. I was born in 83. Like us younger generations, we're all about authenticity these days, right? Like, hey, just be real. Just be authentic. And that's good. That's, that, there's, that's virtuous. But you can take that too far where you say, you know what? I'm not going to pursue godly behavior unless I'm really feeling it because like I just want to be authentic, Right? Like we're feelings-driven culture and, and generation. Like, like I don't, I don't want to pursue godly behavior unless I'm, I'm, I'm truly, authentically feeling it. But that's like me saying, I'm not, I'm not going to pursue loving my wife well <laughs> unless I'm really feeling it. I just want to be authentic, right? And so I'm just going to be rude because I'm not feeling it. That wouldn't make me authentic, 
the issue Jesus is getting at here is, is he's saying, look, when you find, the issue here is that when you find your sense and your worth in your external behavior rather than in your, your internal spiritual life, that's what he's warning us of. He's saying, don't find your sense of value. Don't sense, find your sense of rightness, your sense of righteousness in what you do in your behavior rather than in your internal spiritual life. Don't place your identity in what you do rather than in what Jesus has done. Which leads us to a third and final point. I want us to see now the desire that Jesus satisfies. You see, the problem with a worldview built on just follow the rules is that it doesn't address the heart. And the problem with a worldview built on follow your heart is it doesn't address the condition of the heart. I'll read verse 20 to 23 again with me. And this time I want you, as you're reading these, I want you to read this as a list of symptoms uh, that sin causes in us. Things that have stained the world that we live in, the communities that we live in. Verse 20, Jesus says to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, that's where comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And I want you to notice here that Jesus here is listing both actions and attitudes. He's listing here both actions that we do and attitudes from within. And what he's doing here is he's really showing the pervasiveness of sin's nature. This is one of the places we get that central truth, that teaching of original sin, or as some theologians call it, total depravity. And total depravity doesn't mean that you are as bad as you possibly can be. Sinful people can do good things sometimes. And so total depravity doesn't mean that you are bad as you possibly could be. That would be utter depravity. Rather, it just means that there is no entirely pure part of a person because a person's whole being, a person's whole nature has been affected by, stained by sin and that our only hope is to have someone other than us, to have someone apart from us, someone holier than us, change us from within for God himself to cleanse our hearts. And our text gives us a glimpse at who can do that in verse 19. When Mark is telling the story of Jesus here, he makes this sort of little clarifying comment at the end of verse 19. And he says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. It's interesting, interesting word, words here. He declared all foods clean. It's like, cool, what's the big deal with that? But that verb in the Greek, declared, it's the same thing word used when he declared uh, a, a leper uh, a, a forgiven or a paralytic forgiven, when he declared a leper healed, when he told, uh, declared a young girl and told her to, to rise. Jesus declared there's an authority there, all foods clean. And if you're reading too fast, you'll miss how massive of a point this is. Some scholars actually say that one of the most monumental paradigm-shifting statements in the whole book of Mark is that phrase right there. Why? Why is that so significant? You see, Mark's original audience would have been reading this, and they would have thought, wait, 
Jesus declared all foods clean, but what about all those foods in the Old Testament that are unclean, like the shellfish? What about all those old foods that are unclean because of the rituals and the, and the purity laws? What about the cleansing? And Jesus declares now that those things don't defile us. It's not what's from the outside that defiles us, but what comes from the inside, what comes from the heart. And so there, people would be reading this and they would say like, what, isn't that contradicting what's said earlier? Isn't that contradicting what's said in the old law? But Jesus here in saying this was not saying that the old laws don't matter anymore. What he is saying is that now these laws have been fulfilled. Something has happened at this moment in human history, at this moment in redemptive history, that fulfills what all those old laws were pointing forward to. What happened? You see, the point of the cleansing laws were to remind us, remember, that we need to be clean in the presence of God. And so they pointed forward to someone who would ultimately be the one who would not just cleanse us on, on the outside, but cleanse us on the inside in our hearts. Those laws pointed forward to Jesus. You see, Jesus came to rescue you from you. He came to save me from me, to deliver us from us. Jesus is the one true, the ultimate high priest, who the Old Testament priests all pointed forward to. But instead of wearing robes of rich garment, Jesus was stripped naked and beaten. Instead of doing a ritual washing of his hands, this high priest did a ritual washing that was getting spit on by his enemies. Instead of being cleansed from defilement before stepping into the temple, Jesus was brought to the ultimate place of defilement outside the gate of a garbage heap where he stepped onto the cross. And on that cross, as the ultimate Corbin, as the ultimate offering to God, he died in our place so that through the power of his resurrection, we could have our hearts transformed from the inside out because that is where we need it most. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he didn't, the high king of kings, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, he didn't stay up on his throne so that he could look down on you and watch you try and work your way up to him. He stepped down into our sin-stained, broken world so that he could make all things new. He stepped down at infinite cost to himself so that he could seize our dead, our lifeless our helpless hearts, seize them for himself, his saving grace, which is the only thing that could clean the stain on our hearts. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.